everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the CISA podcast. Um, my name's Jess and I'm the current president of CISA. And my name is Alex. I'm the secretary of CISA this year. So the reason why we decided to start a podcast was so then we can use another medium to connect with our science students um, and to share more about some awesome news, some research that our lecturers are doing, and to hear about some um, insights that industry speakers or our lecturers can share with us. Um, and so we're super stoked to have our first guest with us today, Professor Sean Hendy. Um, Pura, it's great to be here. <laughs> Um, so yeah, did you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm um, a professor of physics. I teach in the physics department here at University of Auckland. Um, and I'm also director of uh, one of the centres of research excellence. Uh, the one that I lead is called Tapunaha Matatini, which um, translates as the meeting place of many faces. It's kind of got a dual name um, for us. One is we're a multidisciplinary centre. So it's not just physicists like me. There's historians, computer scientists, mathematicians, anthropologists. We've even got some archaeologists. So it's a really it's a big mix of people. Um, but also many faces or matatini um, is a metaphor for complexity, complex systems in, in te reo. Um, so it's got that double meaning for us because we study complex systems. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming today. Oh, it's great to be invited to come along, <laughs> yeah. Um, so just before we start, we thought we would introduce the general structure of how this podcast is going to be. So for each episode, we're going to share some fun and insight, exciting news that's just hot off the press. And then we're going to dive deep down into a couple more topics that we want to discuss. So for example, today we're going to be talking a lot about the climate strike because it has literally just finished. Um, I think like probably a minute ago since we started recording yeah. at three. <laughs> yeah. um, and with Sean, he has done something amazing. He had a no flight 2018. Mm. And so we're going to touch a little bit about that. Um, and since Sean is an amazing science communicator, we would also want to speak more about that today, amongst other topics. Um, and then hopefully that takes us to the end of our time. Um, but if not, then... Yeah, we'll probably share some more bits that Sean finds interesting as well with us. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Alex, do you want to take us away with some news? Sure, so uh, let's get started on some recent scientific news and get your professional opinion on sure, it. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually want to start with one in four U.S. senior high school students have vaped. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's... Gosh, you know, that's there's not an there's an area very far from my expertise as a physicist, <laughs> but I do end up talking about all sorts of different aspects of science, and and you know, this is one that that sort of comes up repeatedly, right? The 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 battle against cigarette smoking, um, and so that you know that one of the debates is that the controversial um, elements about vaping is, a, is it's an alternative to cigarette smoking, so it's a pathway off smoking cigarettes, and you know, cigarettes are much more harmful yeah, to your health than, than vaping. Um, and so some people think, well, we should, you know, we should be allowing vaping because it's that it's, it's a route out of, of um, cigarette smoking. On the other hand, the fact that we're seeing young people take up vaping, well, that's, that's perhaps against that, right? Maybe mm. it's a gateway to smoking. And of course, we might be concerned about the, the, um, the harms that, that vaping um, uh, causes. I mean, I, I think still... You know, it's it's alarming that, that you know we've heard some stories about some deaths from vaping and the fact it's yeah. doing damage to yeah. lungs. Still, you know, probably not as bad as cigarette smoking, from what we know. Um, and you know, say compared to alcohol, that's mm. that's a relatively small um, uh, harm. Mm. Um, but I think the big debate is is 
is around as a gateway to, to smoking um, and other harmful practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't think this debate's going to go away anytime soon. The the tobacco industry is, you know, it's Booming. dependent on these products, <laughs> yeah. and um, and we know. You know, especially around science communication, they, there's some underhanded tactics that they've used in the past, mm-hmm. um, and and so a lot of people are quite suspicious of their stance on vaping um, because of that, because of what's happened in the past. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. I just wish people who do vape have a little bit more, you know, idea of manners in public. Yeah, I know. It's pretty bad, even <laughs> yeah. in Auckland, I would say. Yeah, you could yeah. be walking down the street and suddenly there's a big yeah, it's just puff. Puff. white yeah. cloud coming yeah. towards you. you just that does, yeah. yeah, yeah. But do you almost feel that because um, there, like, vaping hasn't been around for this long, that that's kind of the reason why we don't really know much about the negatives? That yeah, I, I, I think that's. Yeah. I mean, often, especially where. You know, I mean, it took us a long time to get to grips with the harms of of smoking. Smoking, You know, we have better data available these days, and you'd like to think that something that was harmful would be caught earlier these days because of the the way we deal with with health now. Um, But you know, for some of these some of these effects, where you know maybe it's not as harmful as smoking, so so the danger is is more marginal. It can take a long time for us to accumulate the evidence. If it's long-term harm as well, that can take a while to come through in the population. So I guess it's something to be cautious about and to keep an eye on the literature and and to try and make an informed decision um, Mm. about whether you vape or not. And be polite. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you're walking down the street, don't leave big clouds behind you. Um, So the next topic is about this leaked paper Um, published by Google. I find this quite interesting. So apparently Google has supposedly reached quantum supremacy. Supremacy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So basically this computer can, is the first ever quantum computer that can do something that supercomputer can't. Yeah. Which is making, it's very technical, but it's basically replicating randomness. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it can do computation in 200 seconds that a supercomputer, the world's strongest supercomputer in the the world, takes 10,000 years to do, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I mean, this is actually pretty exciting because I, I actually get asked to talk about quantum computing quite a lot. You know, it's it's an area that's of interest to a lot of people. Partly it's because, of, of course, the, well, basically one of the only applications we know for quantum computing is is breaking <laughs> RSA public key cryptography, right? <laughs> which is what we depend on to do our banking and, and a lot of our secure transactions, right? So people are kind of concerned if, you know, if, if, if Google can... Can um, or, or you know, or a spy agency can mm. um, hack our, um, our our secure transmissions, our, you know, our, our, our transactions on, um, across the banking network. Then that could be that could be pretty bad. Um, and so people have been, you know, people the idea for quantum computing, you know, it's been around for a while, mm-hmm. but you know, te- achieving it technically has been very challenging. Um, I think most physicists, it's just. You know, it's been a matter of time. Like when, you know, it's it's possible. You just hard, technologically hard. So we've been sort of waiting to see where things would where things would land, and it, and it is pretty exciting to see it starting to get to that point where you know maybe there are quantum computers now that are really solving problems that classical computers can't. This particular one. Random numbers. Well, that's actually dear to my heart because I, I do computer <laughs> simulations, and it's really it's really important for me to have good random numbers. And actually, the classical classical computers, you you know, we use pseudo random numbers. It's not really random, which is not really random. No. And actually, that has led to that has tripped me up 
um, there were some simulations I was doing and um, there was a little bug in the, in the code that I was using to generate random numbers. And so it, it, it actually, for about a couple of weeks, we were producing nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we could see the results were non-physical, right? Um, and it was because we weren't generating proper random numbers. Um, and so it is, a, it is an issue. Um, but I think one of the things, one of the things that's really exciting about this is actually the number of applications we can think of for quantum computers are pretty small at the moment. Mm. You know, we talked about yeah. breaking that public key, key cryptography, this generating random numbers, which is a bit niche. Um, but I've always thought that, well, actually, once we get these things, once practical quantum computing actually starts to happen, then people will explore and will quickly develop new applications for it. Um, it won't just be about breaking codes. You know, we'll find other things we can do with it. But we kind of needed to have a a working example for, for people to get interested in and to really try it. And, and, and just, so I think we're entering that phase now. I mean, it was interesting that it was leaked. I guess there's going to be an announcement. Yes. So this was, I think it went up accidentally on the NASA website yep. for it briefly. <laughs> um, it's been circulating on Twitter quite yeah. a lot recently, yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of comment on, uh, I saw the hashtag first quantum supremacy and mm. I'm like, what's, what's this about? And so, yeah. So I guess we've got, you know, the proper publication to come soon. Um, but yeah, it'll be really interesting to find out exactly what Google have done. Um, and, it, and it certainly puts them ahead of the of the pack, right? That's all, because IBM, of course, have been working on this for quite a while. So yeah, exciting yeah. times. Yeah. I guess a little segue, um, you know how like with so many of these scientific, I guess, inventions or just these advancements, do you think that legally we'd be able to keep up with, I guess, legislating this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, quantum computing. Um, you know, there were there are there are people that set standards for the cryptography, yeah. um, and they are um, in the US and they're mm. related. <laughs> they're probably not very far from some of the spy agencies. Mm. And I think it was maybe four or five years ago that actually they started decommissioning the algorithms that can be um, that can be broken by via a quantum um, computer. Mm -hmm. So actually. Yes, actually, in this case, at least around that cryptography angle, um, the standards have now moved on, mm. and, and for the most part, people are working uh, on algorithms that aren't vulnerable to, mm. to quantum computing. That was always, you know, people used to say, you don't actually need to build a quantum computer, you just need to show that one is possible, then everybody would have to shift away yeah. <laughs> from those, from that form of cryptography onto other forms that are secure against quantum computing. Um, but I actually think once we've built one, people will find other applications for it other than mm. just um, hacking your bank account. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. Should we uh, move on to the climate strike then? Yes. Sure. So um, I think we, I was there, um, which was super, super exciting. There were a lot of people. Um, you said that there was about 80,000? 80, 80, th yeah, I saw on Twitter that they were estimating in Auckland it was about 80,000. I mean, it certainly felt. It was one of the biggest marches. I can't think of a bigger march or event, actually, I've yeah. been to. That's roughly the population of Palmerston North. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Palmy. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, that's big. I mean, uh, and, uh, and it certainly it had a great feel because there were yeah. people of all ages there. And, um, you know, it's, I, I specifically appreciated that, you know, it's a, it's been organized by young people. Yes. It's, um, and actually starts to, I mean, I've sort of grown up knowing about climate change. I did my... My um, year six or seven science fair project on climate change in the early 1980s. You guys are looking at me quizzically <laughs> back in the dark ages, right? And it, yes, it was. Um, and, and that was still, like we still back then, I think people understood the greenhouse effect and that we were 
they were, we were putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but we hadn't detected the changes in climate yet. Yeah. Um, so it still seemed like this very hypothetical thing. And I think back then, I, you know, I just assumed it would be sorted by now. I didn't imagine that I'd be, you know, middle-aged and still worried about this crisis when I did that science fair project. Yeah. And I think we're just, we are reaching the, the point where we've, yeah, not acting is not an option. Um, yeah, I mean, the 1990s was, I, I think it was quite a hot spot or hot kind of decade for the whole entire world to kind of get behind with, you know, the Rio Declaration yeah, and all that yeah. good stuff. But it kind of is quite terrifying that it's 20 years since the 1990s, if not more, and there's still like, you know, 80,000 people out there marching to demand people in positions who can make, you know, these big decisions to make those you know, crucial decisions that will benefit the climate in a way. Um, yeah, it's kind of scary how you kind of mentioned that. Yeah, you <laughs> you were doing it in year six as well because yeah. I was doing it in year six. Yeah, I know. It's just it's depressing, mm. isn't it? That, that that somehow we we haven't got our heads around that. And I think it, it does reflect the magnitude of the problem. Right? It's not like I, you know, another problem around that time was the ozone hole, yes, right? Yes. And and that it was a relatively simple fix, right? We yeah. didn't have to completely retool the economy to deal with that one. We just had to, you know, some engineering designs yeah. and some particular gases that had to be phased out. Mm-hmm. But we did it. Um, and we could have followed that path on climate. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, there's been strong vested interests. There's a big part of the economy is, de- is dependent on emitting carbon dioxide. Yeah. And um, and so we've had to grapple with, well, how are we, how are we going to change how are we going to shift from an economy that really does depend on burning fossil fuels? You know, we've all been the beneficiaries of that. Yeah. Um, we've all, um, but particularly those of us in, in, you know, advanced economies, right? We've built these advanced economies using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so weaning ourselves off that, that sugar rush um, that, that, you know, has benefited many of us is, is going to be a hard thing. And, but, you know, the next decade, we've got. We really have no choice. We're going to have to confront it, and the effects of climate change are going to be right in our face. Yeah. Um, over the next decade, I mean, I, you know, I guess we'll we'll talk about my no, no fly year in a bit, but I have gone back to flying this year. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I was in Tasmania and parts of Tasmania that don't burn were on fire. I went oh, wow. to um, Canadian Rockies, um, and the um. Uh, the pine forests there are dying off. Um, the winters have got warmer, and there's a beetle um, that can now survive in the Rockies over the winter, mm. and that's killing the pine trees. So oh, you can wow. see these massive hillsides of dying trees. pines. Mm. Um, so yeah, the effects are coming closer to home for everyone, um, and you know it's just no longer. You know, I suppose there was plausible deniability for a yeah. while. You could sort of, you know, you could sort of hide in the data and, and oh, well, it's noisy, da- you know. You, yeah. You, but I don't think that's a viable position anymore. So I guess um, off of that, do you think that, you know, there's like pushes for people to stop using straws or for us to stop using plastic bags? Do you think that these, I guess, smaller initiatives are going to be enough to be able to make a difference or like to make that change in the limited amount of time that we have. Yeah, I mean this is this is a big thing, you know, can we can we change it through individual action? Yeah. You know? Um and I think the answer is well no. We, we you know th- there's as an individual there's parts of the economy that you can't affect um directly. You know, mm. our steel industry for example um is is a 
is very climate dependent. Mm-hmm. We can have some influence on that, but but um, ultimately we're going to have you know they're going to have to develop technologies that can produce low carbon you know steel that has low emissions associated with it. So um, as as individuals making those small choices, yes, they can add up to something big, but actually there's more fundamental change that has to happen. We're going to have to, and that's that's why I'm quite positive about. You know, we've got the Carbon Zero Act making its way, hopefully, to legislation this year. Mm. Um, and that will bring in some changes that will fundamentally change how we do things um, in New Zealand, in particular um, uh, rebooting the emissions trading scheme, mm. which, will, which will effectively um, put a price on carbon. I mm. mean, we've, we've had a price on carbon for a while, but it's, it certainly doesn't reflect the damage that carbon's doing um, at the moment that our emissions are dying and so we'll eventually you know over the next decade though the cost of the damage that you do when you emit carbon will be will start to be brought into the economy and that's going to be that's going to be important and 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 um, and and actually will make changes in our lives and that's partly when I when I did my no fly year yeah um, it was it was an individual action and and that's because I looked at my carbon footprint and Boy, as an academic, <laughs> I mean, one. I have to say, one of the great things about being a scientist is you get to work from people from all around the world. I mean, it's just uh, that is one of the fantastic things about doing science. It's not, you know, you don't just work with the same people. Yeah, lock yourself in a cupboard no, and just save away. <laughs> um, but it does mean that you end up traveling a lot, and so for most scientists, that will be that will be their biggest. Um, the biggest input into their um, their, their carbon footprint, mm-hmm. and so it's, for me, it was about taking control of that and shrinking it, which I did, and I actually ended up feeling a lot better about it. <laughs> so taking individual actions can be important, partly for your own psychology, yeah. And they do add up. If enough people join you, then they can add up to make change. I mean, in my case, I had to deal with the fact that actually the planes probably still flew. Yeah. <laughs> right. There might have been an empty seat, or maybe someone got a cheaper seat. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, but they still flew, and so actually, really, although my own personal footprint shrank, right? I didn't actually make a dent in carbon. But now you see lots, of, you know, lots of people are joining in. Um, so we've got the Flying Shame campaign that's come out of Sweden. Mm-hmm. There are people in New Zealand. There's a Facebook group called Fly Less Kiwis, uh, which people share tips on how to get around without, you know, in a low carbon way. Um, and so actually, once enough of us start acting, then that can start to bring in the change. Mm. So and you also, like I heard that domestically, you also would take buses or trains yeah. instead of... Yep. <laughs> instead of the yeah. planes, yeah. I'm still trying to do that as much mm-hmm. as I can. Um, so I didn't go overseas at all last year, right. uh, 2018. Um, uh, and to get around the country, yeah. I, um, so the... the the luxury way to do it is, on, is catch the train, yeah. and I, I really enjoyed that because um, uh, you can work actually. You know, you yeah. get your laptop out. Um, you know, you, um, uh, marking student assignments on the train. <laughs> you know, is, it can be done. Um, downside is there's um, there's no Wi-Fi, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the conductor puts it. Um, we we run Windows Live. The viewers live out the window, um, and there's actually not much cell coverage, right? Because you're actually going through quite remote parts of the country. So that surprised me on my first trip. Mm. But once you know, once I made sure I had everything synced onto my laptop, I was able to work quite comfortably for it but it's 11 hours to wellington oh wow and then if you want to get to christchurch then you get in the ferry um and then uh, last year unfortunately the the train between picton and kaikoura 
was out because yes. of the earthquake. Mm. So I was then on the buses. So so basically around the South Island, I was busing around. And um, although later in the year, I I, um, I found an electric vehicle car share company. So I could get to Christchurch and then they have about 100 cars that you oh. can just like get a little, you get a little um, swipe card. You just go up, tap the car, you book your car, tap it and you're away. Oh, so I took that, took an EV to Queenstown and down to Dunedin. And they were they were really cool trips. You can't work <laughs> yet. while you're driving. <laughs> your EV, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah. So in terms of, do you think that it was quite accessible, or was it quite a lot of work trying to plan your trips? I mean, it's more work, um, it, but it's doable. I mean, I, I um, you know, you definitely, and, and I don't think like travel agents aren't really set up to help you that much with yeah. that kind of travel. Um, and I guess it's, you know, the, the um, or even the online apps well you know that we have to book travel through the university aren't really set up to do that yeah so you've got to go you know so i'd end up building myself little spreadsheets with my itinerary you know <laughs> to make sure because i you know you, you've got to get your accommodation as well because you you know instead of doing a day trip where i just you know head out to the airport about 6 a.m to fly to wellington and then get back about 9 p.m mm-hmm. i'd be staying overnight you know train stay overnight in wellington and mm-hmm. probably end up staying for a week so I was replacing five day trips with five days down there. So yeah, it did have to be a bit more organized about the travel. And then um, uh, when people change their plans, right? So <laughs> I, I had, I had there was going to be this great trip. Um, and um, it was sort of anchored around this meeting I had to get to in Nelson. So, you know, and I love Nelson, actually. It's one of my favorite cities in New Zealand. So I was really looking forward to it. And I'd planned this this great like, great trip around it, um, and then suddenly they decided, no, we're having the meeting back in Auckland. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'd made all these other commitments n- now. So what I found, I found myself on overnight buses at that point, oh. and that wasn't much fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's not a lot worse than a, a long haul mm-hmm. overnight flight, and t- you know, and if you can, so you can, if you can sleep on a long haul, then you can do an overnight bus, but. Um, you know the buses don't have toilets, so you leap leap out in the middle of the night and and bulls, <laughs> looking for that, looking for the service station toilet, <laughs> which is not very glamorous. Um, and and you know if you're arriving um, into Wellington, for example, on on the overnight bus, then you you know you, re- you really want to have a shower before mm. you turn up to that meeting with the minister. Yeah. Um, so you've got to arrange to have a hotel room waiting for you. Mm. So so it you know it's doable. And and if more people start doing it, it'll be, you know, the services will get better, yeah. and the flexibility will get better. And um, um, so so yeah, you know, give it a go. It's not impossible. Yeah. Um, and it actually, I think overall worked out worked out cheaper. Oh, that's really good to yeah. hear. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Amazing. Um, I thought it would be quite interesting to bring it back to the climate strike. Yeah. Um, because I actually have this question for you: is um, so for example, at the UN right now, you know, we've got some amazing. You know, children who are really speaking up um, to world leaders. But I guess my question is, do you think that we can really make a difference if we're not in those positions to make those decisions ultimately? So we're not in the big corporates. We're not going to be able to change the decision-making that they actually do. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, do you think that we can actually change things by just striking or just by speaking yeah, to look, people? I, look, I think you have to. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I, I did my science, you know, when I was eleven, did my science free project on it, and I just kind of always assumed that someone else would sort this out, mm. you know. And 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 again, you know, coming 
hitting middle age, <laughs> suddenly being in a position where I can do something about it, it, it was a bit of a shock actually that it hasn't been dealt with. I kind of always assumed that actually we'd just get to it. Um, and so, so please don't be complacent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I, yes, it is up to people like me now who, who have ability to make change to, to take a lead. Um, but, but, you know, don't let us off the hook, mm-hmm. you know, hold us accountable, um, and, and make sure that, that, that we do go through with things. I mean, that, you know, the meeting, the, the, the march today just, just reinforces to people that we're all in this together. I think that's the big thing about climate change. It, yeah. it's, it, we all do have to get into this together. It's, it's going to be, um, a challenge for society. Mm. Um, and some of us have more responsibility than others, but it genuinely is, genuinely is something we have to tackle collectively. Mm-hmm. So yeah, keep, keep at it. Right. And hopefully by the time you guys are in decision making positions, you'll, there'll be some other problem you've got to deal with. <laughs> not <Yeah>. this one. <laughs> hopefully it's uh, not this one anymore. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we're, of course, we're going to be, we're going to be ad- having to adapt, right. We've got yeah. enough change baked in now that we will have to adapt. Um, and we've just we've got to just make sure that that's not catastrophic adaptation, right? Yeah. That, that it's, it's adaptation that we can manage. Yeah, I think one of the um, coolest things about the strike that we had was, well, basically people marched down to the mark where um, the sea levels would be if they yeah. had risen yeah. two meters. Yeah. And I think that that's a very you know visual way to kind of present it. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Um, I mean, that's what I did for my science fair project. Was I got a topographical map and I just mark the different lines of sea level, you know, if yeah. different things melt. <laughs> yeah. Here's where it here's where it will be. And so that's what that image has always stuck with me in my mm. in my mind from what I did. Yeah. It is kind of terrifying though because post Paris climate agreement was many. I don't think that there are I can't think of a country off the top of my head that is actually meeting the targets that were set there. So there's, I mean, there is some good news. I mean, yeah. I think I think there are countries that are managing to. I mean, what, this is one of the challenges. I don't know if, if a, a book I'd recommend is um, Donut Economics mm-hmm. um, by Kate Raworth. Um and um, she she talks about how we've got to decouple. Well, she talks about whether it's possible, and I don't know if it is to decouple our consumption of our burning of fossil fuels and economic growth. Mm. And that's one of the encouraging things that actually in the advanced countries, we're starting to see countries that are growing their economies and not growing their carbon footprint. And that's a change, right? If you look back historically over the last 200 years, They've been... every bit of economic growth has been, has been, you know, correlated. has been based on correlated um, with burning more fossil fuel. Mm. So we're starting to see that turn around and that's, you know, economic growth is important to a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, it is fundamental to the way we do things at the moment. I mean, Kate, Kate's book's really interesting because she looks at scenarios under how we might change that. You know, how might we reach an economy that was that was steady state rather than constantly demanding growth? Um, and but you know, if we can continue to grow our economy, provide more opportunities for other people, and and you know, not deplete resources while we do it then that would be fantastic. Yeah. So if you meet somebody that, because there are a lot of people who deny yeah. climate change, <laughs> yeah. what, what would you say to them? <laughs> um, so I, so every time, you know, of course I do do a lot of media around this, and particularly with the no-fly year. I mean, one of the goals of the no-fly year was to talk as much in the media about it. And that was, you know, I wanted other people to make 
to change as well to be conscious of their flying. So and and of course that then brings in <laughs> lots of people. So you get emails. Um, I it, you know often they don't um, particularly if you're a scientist they'll be you know my, a lot of climate change deniers will be quite reluctant to talk to you face to face. So there's a there's a first tip: invite them in, <laughs> right? And 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 you'll get a whole lot of variety of excuses as to mm-hmm. why they actually don't want to come and talk to a scientist, um, which is which is quite interesting. I mean. Uh, so, so yeah, so you engage, you know, after you've done a media piece on climate change, um, you will get emails from people saying, no, no, it's all rubbish. And, um, and you know, some of it can be quite abusive sometimes. I mean, and then, you know, and for the most part, you just sort of ignore that. Some people sometimes they'll start out like I genuinely want to know, um, but then it, it it quickly becomes that they don't really want to know. Mm. <laughs> they just want to push things at you. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people actually do want to engage in t- some discussion with you. And then you can sit down and, and you know, take them through um, uh, the, the their arguments and tell them, show them how it's not right. I mean, I, I can't think of many people I've actually changed, completely changed their mind through a, you know, through an interaction like that. Mm. Most people come in with very strong preconceived beliefs about climate change um, and particularly you know we, we, we know this is how people process information right you you, you, you tend to um, be more receptive to information that aligns with your values right so if you're someone who's maybe conservative uh, maybe values individual responsibility, Right, and we're talking about this collective problem, which is climate change, and you know, ch- saying we have to f- completely change capitalism. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're not going to be as receptive to the information that that persuades you about climate as someone who's a greenie, you know, like me, <laughs> <laughs> right? Who, who, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm very conscious and aware of environmental damage, so I'm more likely to to really accept that kind of information. So we all have these biases in the way we process information. Mm. And I think um, that's that's what that's what's often happening when you meet people who are skeptical of climate change. They are they are basically giving themselves a diet of skeptical information. And there's an awful lot of misinformation out there. I mean mm. it's just incredible. There are a few issues like this. Um, you know, anti-vax, you know, things that really people are very passionate about and that seems to generate lots of misinformation. So you can go look at, you know, you go online and you can look at these climate denial blogs Mm. and you'll see people trading arguments against climate change. And, you know, and for the most part, as a physicist, I I can, you know, I can see through these quite quickly. Others, actually, it's quite, it can be quite, Hard, right? You know, you, you, it'll be based on some data, and you don't know quite where the data came from, and and um, so actually, you do need to go to a real expert. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it, I, you know, a lot of the the, the sort of skeptical things that are thrown around, I can, I can see through or, or explain to people why it's wrong. Sometimes I can't though, and mm. actually, I, you need to refer that on to a, a climate scientist. Interestingly, some of the some of the most difficult stuff to to rebut, or the stuff you see most often. Is often stuff that was debated 50, 60 years ago. Mm. You know, so it's taken. We've we've literally been studying 
climate change for over a hundred years, right? People were people were thinking about this in the eighteen nineties, um, wondering about whether the industrial revolution was going to change the climate. Mm. Um, and so we've had we've had a hundred years of genuine scientific argument where people were, you know, in the nineteen thirties there was genuinely debate about whether the oceans were just going to soak up all that carbon dioxide, yeah. and it wasn't till the nineteen fifties. That we found out, well, actually, the oceans no, they weren't because they're not they don't mix fast enough. So mm. yes, the top surface of the of the ocean soaks up some of the carbon dioxide, mm. but then it doesn't get deeper, uh, and so the oceans aren't the sink that we thought. And so you'll often, you know, so you'll see people go, "Wow, the oceans will soak it up," right? And and that was a debate that was that was fifty years old. Mm. And so yeah, you know, it's 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 very hard to see your way through the thicket of things and it you know it does come back to um being aware of your own biases what is the mm-hmm. information that that you don't like to process and trying to engage with it more deeply um uh and also trust in science yeah. <laughs> you know it's a big issue um ultimately as even as pre- even as scientists you know we 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 talk about the scientific method mm-hmm. um <laughs> And we don't often talk about how much trust is involved in the scientific method. We ultimately have to trust a lot of people for for science to work well. Mm-hmm. And we know that in the long run, science will sort of self-correct itself um, because of peer review and people replicate your experiments and, and you know, test your ideas. Um, but actually, as a scientist, when you're pr- producing your own work, you're working as part of a team, you have to trust those people around you. That, you know, so trust is part of science and... Um, and that's something that we've, you know, perhaps lost a little bit of mm. um, with with around particular issues with the public. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about this Auckland University not being the only university in New Zealand? Not, yeah. Not not endorse it. Boo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think I think um, it was a little bit disappointing from my point of view. I, I mm. would have liked to have. Um, uh, seen the university in Dorset. Yeah. There's a, um, a there's the Education Act, which s- talks about how universities are supposed to be run, mm. and there's a clause in there that talks about critic and conscience. So universities are, in New Zealand are charged with being the critic and conscience of society, mm. and that's our that's you know you would have heard about academic freedom. That's our vision of academic freedom, the way that that it's built into how our universities are supposed to be run. And interestingly, it, it doesn't charge it. It doesn't just say that's the responsibility of the lecturers. Yeah. It actually talks about the responsibility of the of the institution as a whole. And I think in this case, yeah, I think we did have a responsibility to get behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes back to this idea of, you know, why I did my no-fly year was around walking the talk, right? Mm. If you're going to be out talking about climate change, then you better be seen to be doing something about it, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's one reason people have been sceptical of folks like Al Gore, right? You know, <laughs> inconvenient truth, but he's flying around the world, burning carbon, telling everybody about climate. He's got a house down on the waterfront. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he can't be that um, uh, worried about climate change if he's if he's got waterfront property. You know, so so it's important to be seen to be living up to the things you're talking about. And I think in this case, the university missed an opportunity to do mm. that. That being said, um, look, I know um, uh, the Faculty of Science. Yes, is, they were extremely supportive yeah, in the process. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, all of the students, all of the different student organizations, you know, we pinned a yep. 
open letter headed by AUSA you yep. know, to Stuart McClutchin. Yeah, um, that was really good to see again. Yeah, hold, hold the old folk to account. Yeah. Students um, really stepped up, I think. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And also, I, I just, I think it's really heartwarming that the um, different schools and departments within science, you know, they gave extensions for assignments. Yep. They gave, you know, like, were the, was it assist tutorials or something? They kind of just like pushed them back or like yeah. made yeah. them non-compulsory, yeah. you know, to support students to go on strike. And I think that's just super amazing to see. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that staff needed to get permission from their line managers or whatnot yeah. Yeah. to go. But I mean, hey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're, look, I mean, the university community, I think, has rallied around the, the strike and that's great to see mm. but yeah it would be, would be nice if, if we um, if our top leadership <laughs> had yeah. also been down there I was looking for Stuart I was sort of you know <laughs> yeah. quite tall um, but I didn't see him uh, if you, I don't know if you guys did but um, <laughs> that would have been nice I think that would have sent a message I just think it's kind of ironic because we're ranked number one in the world for our yes. sustainability yeah. impact right yeah, so. yeah. yeah it would have been again that you'd think we want to live up and promote that aspect yeah. of the university um so disappointing that we didn't yeah but, you know but good on, yeah i think you know fantastic to the student community um mm-hmm. that that you did turn out in numbers and did make some public statements um ab- yeah. about the importance of the climate strike so well done yeah yeah it was i think just being at the strike and being able to see i guess f- kids from like there were parents pushing their kids in prams mm-hmm to, you know, people with white hair and stuff all in the march. I think that's just super amazing to see. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's, it's a really, like, uplifting feeling that you get. Mm. And it kind of does give you hope amongst a lot of the times that you kind of read the news or, um, you know, think about decisions that people make and yep. whether or not makes you question things. But, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So... Should we move on to our next topic? Yeah. <laughs> so next topic is the importance of scientific communication to general public. Yeah, so it right. So kind of ties in from our previous <laughs> topic. Quite nicely. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> Quite nicely. And yeah. you're a bit of an expert in this area, I would say. Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a practitioner. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I try and do this as much as I can. I mean, I do think we've got a responsibility. Again, it comes back to that critic and conscience aspect of our roles as a university, but also as scientists... Um, we do have a responsibility to share our knowledge with other people. I mean, most of our funding comes from the public mm. um, for our work. And so there's a, there is a responsibility to take that back to the public and, and um, share your work with them. And then I think also this we've got lots to learn from the public, right? I mean, one of the things I really love about science communication, I mean, I made a little... I made a deal with myself that I would do it while I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, if it became a, if it became a chore, or um, you know, I, I would, I would do less of it, right? Mm-hmm. But but there are aspects that I really enjoy, and one of it is is when you, you actually um, uh, get to engage and get to talk, have a conversation with a group of people. So I personally, I like the. Um, the events where you go to a pub and you can mm. have a beer in hand and you give a talk to a big audience and then you get all sorts of interesting questions mm. and that, you know, you learn a lot. It's kind of uh, like raising the bar. That yeah, raising there. the bar is one. one. Yeah. Um, there's a few other events that are that are like that and there's Cafe mm. Scientifique as well. Oh, um, so those are those are cool events to, to you know, have the privilege to talk at and mm-hmm. I, that's probably my favourite form of public speaking. Um, 
and and yeah, and 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 you learn, right? You learn stuff, right? People people will, first, you know, first of all, you learn what people don't know, yeah. <laughs> and and that can sometimes be surprising. But you can also it can really energize you when you're talking about something that's potentially quite abstract, quantum computing, for example. <laughs> um, you know, you might at first thought think, well, that's not really that interesting to the general public. It's a very specific. But then actually go out and talk, you know, talk to people. If you're interested in it, then chances are, you know, you'll be able to engage an audience and get them interested in it as well. If you can share the reasons and your excitement on a topic, actually, you know, you'll find out that people will respond to that Mm. and, and be interested. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of reasons why we need to do science communication. And, you know, the, one of the one of the things um, I've focused on a lot is science communication in a crisis. Mm. Um, so I wrote a book on silencing science in, in twenty sixteen, um, and and I looked a lot. I interviewed a bunch of scientists who'd been involved in the Canterbury earthquakes, mm-hmm. um, and also talked to people um, who had been involved in, in uh, the Fonterra botulism scare. Oh yes, and just sort of found out how they they did things and actually the, the in both cases the science communication was absolutely essential um, you know um, you know the, the botulism scare it was a false alarm mm-hmm. but actually um, you know Fonterra didn't figure that it figured that out partly thanks to the science the public science communication that was done mm-hmm. right in a crisis we kind of tend to assume that everybody you know all the all the chief executives or the government ministers mm. have a perfect understanding of what's going on, but actually they're learning from the media as well. And so as a scientist, getting out and talking to the media can be really important. And, you know, I think Susie Wiles is one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and she she was one of the very few scientists who was talking publicly about the botulism mm-hmm. scare. And, um, and she helped keep that story under control because mm. she guessed based on the information that was coming out that it was unlikely, you know, that it was likely to be a false alarm. Yes. And she was able to talk about that publicly. And ironically, that's how some of Fonterra's senior management found out. <laughs> You'd think that they'd be talking internally, but yeah. there would, you know, there must have been some internal blockages mm. um, that, that meant that people weren't communicating within the organisation. And so actually it was thanks to... Uh, work by Susie and a journalist that actually some parts of Fonterra got their head around the story. What was the reason why not many scientists were able to? This was an interesting it. one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so you can, it's, it's actually so I had to do quite a bit of investigation to figure this out. Right. And, and the story broke on a Friday, um, and on Saturday, uh, that the Saturday you can actually see in the me- in the media there's actually quite a quite a few scientists mm-hmm. commenting, and then on the Sunday they all go quiet. And it's really just left to Susie. Susie's the last person standing mm-hmm. on the Sunday. And uh, it turned out what had happened was that the people talking on the Saturday were, were mostly the, the the country's experts. Right. Um, and they had all, on, on Saturday afternoon, they'd all been signed up to a government advisory panel. <laughs> right. Oh. So they'd got a call from the Ministry for Primary Industries um, and they had to sign non-disclosure agreements. Yeah. Um, and so actually the government Accidentally, it wasn't deliberate. Like the government didn't set out to silence all the communication, but this is what they do. Um, they'll make you sign a non-disclosure agreement, mm-hmm. and so suddenly, all these experts, the country's top experts, you know, yes, they were on this panel, but then they weren't available to the public. Mm-hmm. And and Susie, 
Susie's great because she's she's a she's a general communicator. I mean, mm-hmm. she's a microbiologist, so she was well qualified to talk about this problem. But she's not a food safety expert. Yes. Um, and so she wasn't on this panel, but she was available to talk, and she was blogging about it as well. Mm-hmm. And so journalists were able to go to her blog, see what was going on, um, and she was talking directly to journalists as well. Um, yeah, so sometimes government works against itself. I've yeah. had I've now had a bit of an experience with this because I'm on the, the Microplasma Bova Science Advisory uh, Group, um, and um, I didn't sign my mm-hmm. non-disclosure. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> I never sent my form back. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess also because New Zealand's so small, um, yeah. there's probably only you know a finite amount of experts. So then, if something happens, then like it's po- it's highly possible that they all get yeah. um, locked up. And that's and- what exactly what happened in this case. You know, mm-hmm. the the eight. Top experts in the country mm-hmm. were all on the panel, on the panel <laughs> and that left no one who could talk to the media yeah. um, apart from Susie. So it is, and you may find, you know, that in New Zealand, you'll often find if you become a science communicator in New Zealand, you will find yourself in those sort of situations. Mm. The weirdest thing that's happened to me, or the most surprising thing, was was being involved in the Fukushima mm. response. Um, so when the the the, um, the tsunami hit yeah. the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan. Um, I've done a little bit of work on materials um, for for um, radioactive storage, mm-hmm. um, radioactive waste storage, um, and so one of my colleague, one of the people I've worked with in the UK, sort of dumped me in it. He was getting calls from New Zealand journalists mm-hmm. um, saying, "Tell us, you know, can you tell us about what's going on at Fukushima?" And he was saying, "Well." Talk to talk to Sean in New Zealand. <laughs> so I suddenly started getting all these calls from overseas. Well, from New Zealand journalists, and yeah. and, it, and and it was it was you know it was not it's not an area of it's not an area I particularly specialize in, but I did realize that I could probably make a difference. There mm-hmm. were things I could say, you know. So I I wrote a blog post just on what a you know what a what a meltdown mm. is. You know what was going on. Why were there, why were things exploding at Fukushima? Where you know where were the the mm-hmm. hydrogen gas coming from, et cetera, and um, uh, and so I did you know so I did play a role in it, but it was a real surprise to me that I'd been called up. But again, just the depth of experts, you know, that's not an area we have a lot of experts in mm-hmm. in New Zealand. Um, I think you know we do have some people who are more expert than me, but for the most part they weren't talking um, because the organisation they work for doesn't like to be associated <laughs> with nuclear <laughs> with, with nuclear power, yeah. right? Because it's such a hot topic. Mm-hmm. So you know, so so I found myself in the position, and then on the, I was on my way home on the bus, um, just coming down Richmond Road and Ponsonby, and my phone goes and I answer, and it's the BBC. <laughs> 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 and this, this, this is this is about a year afterwards, um, and they said, "Oh, we want to know how you sh- how you um, you wrote an article about how to shut down a nuclear reactor. Um, can you tell us how to sh- how to turn one on because the f- the, the Fukushima reactors are going back on?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, I can't. <laughs> uh, over to someone else this time." <laughs> but everything is super complex, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, I think we have to probably wrap it up from now on yeah which is kind of sad but i actually do have a quick question for you yeah um you mentioned about a lot of the science research that you guys do is public funded yep. but a lot of the research is actually tied up in paid journals yeah yeah so that's i mean i know that you know that that's a change i think that's that's coming we're, mm. we're gonna that that won't persist forever but it's it is really depressing right that yes. that Sometimes um, uh, research that New Zealand public 
funds put its put its taxes into mm-hmm. um, ends up in journals they can't access. Yes. Um, you know, you, you can come to the university and get them through the university, and you know, we're lucky enough to be able to do that. But for most of the public, they can't. Mm-hmm. And um, we're increasingly publishing our things in open access journals mm-hmm. where we pay up front, so we actually pay the the journal to to publish them open access and so that's that's something we're trying to do more of i mean it's expensive um uh and so not everybody does it at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, but i think increasingly you'll see people publishing in open access journals well it's super amazing cool so alex you want to tell us about the book Yes, so Sean has kindly given us one one of his is the latest book, is it? Oh, that's the that, that's from twenty sixteen. So okay. not, not it's called Silencing Science. Yeah, um, we'll be giving it away on our Facebook page. If so, we don't actually have a name for the podcast yet. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about it for about two weeks. We couldn't come up with a good okay. one. So I think we're going to run a little competition on our Facebook page. Whoever comes up with the best name for our podcast will be winning the uh, book. Uh, so just, let me just say it's a great prize. Um, you know, <laughs> I actually kind of have book. a quick read before it yeah. goes away. <laughs> um, so, uh, so get your names in. Yeah. yeah. Sounds amazing. Cool. Yeah. So um, thank you so much again for yeah, coming thank you very in much. Um, to speak with us today, Sean. It's always lovely to have a chat with you. Um, and yeah, I guess that concludes our first episode of the Sisa podcast. Hopefully by the next episode we'll have a proper name. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you guys all for listening.